Imagine if God of the universe, the creator of all things, showed up in your neighborhood or your town tomorrow. Today's an ordinary day. If God of the universe showed up tomorrow, that would be an extraordinary day. In what ways would tomorrow be different than today? What things would you see tomorrow that you're not seeing today? What things would you hear tomorrow that you're not hearing today? What things would you taste tomorrow that you're not tasting today? What would your neighbors be doing tomorrow that they're not doing today? What would be going on in nature tomorrow that's not happening today? That is the approach that Matthew takes in his gospel. He doesn't just come out and say, hey, Jesus is God. Let me tell you the things he said and did. No, what Matthew does is he lays out Jesus's credentials. Matthew proves that Jesus is indeed deity. And then after he proves that Jesus is God, then he says, now let me tell you the things that Jesus did, and now let me tell you the things that Jesus said. So the first four chapters of Matthew's gospel, Matthew lays out the credentials, almost like a systematic checklist. Matthew goes through the credentials and lays them out for us so that we have a great starting point to comprehend the things that Jesus said and did in the extraordinary. So what Matthew does is Matthew starts out with the genealogies because the Bible in the Old Testament was very specific about where this Messiah would come from. It was very specific that the Messiah would come from the line of David. So Jesus, like you and I, have two sets of of lineages, two sets of genealogies. We have one through our father's side, our father, his father, our great-grandfather, and so forth. And we also have a parallel genealogy in our mother's side, our grandmother, our grandfather on our mother's side. So we have one on our mother's side and one of our on our father's side. So in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in two of the four Gospels, there are genealogies. The first one is in Matthew. And Matthew's genealogy lays out the historical line from David all the way down to Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father. Since God the Father inserted an embryo into the womb of a virgin, Jesus does not have a biological father. Rather, Joseph is the adoptive father of Jesus. So what Matthew lays out is that when it comes to the kingship, the king sitting on the throne of Israel, which was ultimately banished in the Old Testament. But had it continued, that the lineage from David down to Jesus would have given Jesus the legal right to sit on the throne. As the adoptive oldest son of Joseph, Jesus would have been the next in line to legally have sat on the throne. On on, uh, Luke's um, genealogy that begins in chapter 3, verse 23, Luke is taking the uh, genealogy through Mary's side, showing that Mary as, or that Jesus as the blood relative of Mary, that Jesus had the blood right to sit on the throne of Israel if the kings were still um, in session today. So Jesus uniquely, out of everybody in the world, Jesus uniquely had the blood right to be the next to sit on the throne, and he had the legal right to sit on the throne. Think of it this way. If you 
have two children. One is by birth, bloodline, and the other one is adoptive. When you die, your inheritance to both of those children will be split 50-50. There's no favoritism. Um, so the adoptive child will get 50% of your your um, your estate, of your savings, of your your automobiles and the tangible things that you leave behind, just as your blood um, child would as well. The, so the same is true with Jesus, that Jesus had the legal right and had the... Um, and had the blood right to sit on the throne. So G, uh, so Matthew checks that box, that out of everybody in the world, Jesus uniquely fit that criteria as the son of David. Then what Matthew does is he lays out that Jesus was born of a virgin. It was prophesied back in Isaiah uh, chapter 7, verse 14, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. So as I mentioned earlier, that what God did as the creator of the universe, for him to create, in essence, insert himself into the womb of a virgin as an embryo, uh, bypassing the sin seed of sin, which the Bible says is passed down to generation to generation through procreation. So when human relations happen between a man and a woman, and the woman conceives, sin is passed down through that procreation. And and so had God come to us in the normal way, in the normal way of procreation, then God himself would have been tainted with sin. However, because God did not come to us in that in that way, God bypassed procreation in the natural way and inserted himself into the womb of a virgin. Therefore, when Jesus was born, when Jesus put on the, the veil of flesh, then what happened is Jesus was not a sinful person. He did not have sin within him. So as Jesus lived his 33 years, he did not have sin of thought. He did not have sin in action. Then what, uh, what Matthew lays out is he lays out that the Magi, the Magi were a group of, of um, stargazers and fortune tellers and mystics that were um, around back in the, in the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel in chapter 2, verse 48, and then later in chapter 4, verse 6, talks about how Daniel um, was the leader, that these Magi were under the supervision of Daniel. Daniel had the gift of prophecy and and these magi were under his uh, supervision so that Daniel was able to share with them about the coming of the Messiah, when it would happen and how it would happen. So as we go into the actual time of the magi in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew points that these, that these kings, these wise men that were following the star, it was not a star in the sky because obviously that would burn up anyone um, and there would be no way to follow it. What, what the star was, it was actually the Shekinah glory, which is really the radiance of God. Whenever God is, makes an appearance, uh, whenever there's a description about God, it talks about his light, his illumination. Um, so the, the, and that, that light is called the Shekinah glory. So when the Shekinah uh, glory, when the, when the um, 
when the Jewish people were in the in the desert for 40, 40 years following Moses, it talked about how this Shekinah glory led the Jewish people, led these millions of people in the desert for 40 years, that wherever the Shekinah glory went, the Jewish people followed them, uh, followed it. And then when the Shekinah glory stopped, then the, the people stopped, and that's where they camped. So, so it's that same Shekinah glory that the wise men, the Magi, were following. And what Matthew points out is that these Magi, these kings, they came and gave this other king who was, who was shown to be superior to their own kingship. They gave this one king, this baby in the manger, they gave this main, uh, baby gold and silver and incense. They gave them this gift. One king giving another king gifts of gold is showing that this king is superior that they're not on equal footing, that this king is superior, I'm bowing down to you, I'm giving you a gift. So Matthew points out that out of all the kings of the world, that this baby king was superior than, than all the others. And then Matthew points out a, a situation where there was conflicting prophecies. In the Old Testament, there were three different prophecies that talked about where this Messiah would come from. And one of the prophecies said that the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem. And Micah chapter 5 verse 2 lays that out. However, there was other prophecies that said that the Messiah would come out of Egypt. And that's captured in Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. But yet there was another prophecy that said no, the Messiah actually will come out of Nazareth. And Zephaniah in chapter 1 verse 14 lays that out. So you have three separate prophecies that, that gave information about where this Messiah would come from. Jesus, out of everybody in the world, Jesus uniquely fulfilled all three prophecies because he was born in Bethlehem. And then when there was an edict by Herod to kill the baby children, the baby boys, to try to uh, exterminate the seed that would bring salvation to man, there was an edict put out. And then because of that, Joseph and Mary and Jesus had gone to Egypt and they stayed there until the time that Herod had died. And then when it was safe for them to come back into Jerusalem, into, into the, the area of Israel, they came out of Egypt, fulfilling that prophecy. And then when they did, they went and lived and resided in Nazareth. So Jesus was a Nazareth. The Messiah was a Nazarene. So Jesus uniquely fulfilled all three of those prophecies. So Matthew lays that out and says, check, that's fulfilled. Then when you look at John the Baptist, in the Old Testament, it talked about, about this particular Messiah, or excuse me, this particular prophet that would be um, called out of the people. Normally what happened with other prophets is God just spoke to them, and then the prophet went and said, hey, I had a vision from God. God spoke to me in a dream. I saw God face to face. Here's what God told me. And then, and then that prophet would go and tell the other people the message of God. But these people were never foretold. God just immediately started to stir in their lives. And then from that point forward, they moved forward. However, with John the Baptist, that was unique because it was prophesied that there would be a prophet that would come at some distant time in the future. And that would be a key that when this prophet comes, that right immediately after that would be the Messiah. 
So that was captured in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where it talked about the birth of John the Baptist, that one would come calling out of the wilderness. Now, the significance of, of having John the Baptist come first is, one, it fulfills that prophecy that the Messiah would come soon after. John said, I'm not worthy to tie the Messiah to tie Jesus' sandals. Um, there, at Jesus, uh, John the Baptist said, after me comes one greater than I. So John the Baptist himself was saying, hey, I'm not the Messiah. I'm pointing to one that's coming after me. The way you may want to think about that is if you had a dignitary, let's say the president of the United States, that was coming to your town tomorrow. Once again, what would happen today that isn't happening tomorrow? Well, today, what would happen is you would have um, the Secret Service and the, and the um, CIA or whatever agencies it is, the FBI, you would have them in town today checking manhole covers and checking rooftops, preparing the pathway for the president, uh, almost like a town crier screaming out, you know, here he, here he, you know, prepare, here's the news. And that's what John the Baptist was. He was the one calling into the wilderness saying, prepare, make level the the pathway for the uh, for the Messiah he's coming tomorrow so Matthew says um, in his in his gospel that that the Messiah Jesus fulfills that uh, criteria and then you have um, the next thing the next thing on the list is that you have God the Father that when Jesus was being baptized as an example for what you and I should be doing when we come into faith that that Jesus was showing submission um, to to this um, um, to this uh, um, edict if you will to to be baptized to this command and then while this was happening you heard you um, the the people around the area John the Baptist and the other people around the area they heard this booming voice coming out from heaven that was God the Father saying um, this is my son in essence pointing to Jesus saying this is the one not the one next to him, not the one on the other end of the lake. This one, this is my son. This is the one I love. This is the one I'm well pleased. And, and it said that the Holy Spirit, because God is one, but yet three. You have God the Father, the voice. You have God the Son who took himself and veiled in flesh. And then you have the Holy Spirit that, that came down and physically rested on his shoulder so that there'd be no mistake about who God was speaking to it. In essence, that was his finger pointing, saying, this is a one. And then we also see the the triune God, the three in one. In the second verse of the Bible, you, t you read about how the Spirit was hovering over the newly created waters. Um, and then, so the Holy Spirit is established immediately. You have God speaking, the big bang coming off the off of his lips. Um, creating, um, you know, creating the earth and the heavens and sky. So, so in the first, in the first verse, the first two verses, you have God the Father and you have the Holy Spirit. And then when you get into uh, chapter three, you're now introduced to Jesus, a pre-incarnate God that's walking through the garden in the cool of the day. Later in the book of, of Moses, um, in in um, in Deuteronomy, it talks about how Moses spoke to God face to face, like a, a man speaks to a friend. Um, so, so you have this three in one God that is established early, 
and, and Matthew lays out that, uh, that the credentials of the Messiah, that God with us, God in the flesh, is indeed um, verified by, um, at the baptism. And then after the baptism, then Matthew lays out that Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the desert. So, so Jesus, the Messiah, was um, at his weakest, most vulnerable point that after not eating for 40 days in the desert by fasting, um, he was very weak. He was, he was hungry. He was, he was uh, looking for some food. And Satan came and, and gave him some shortcuts. He said, if you turn the rocks into bread, you know, you're king of the universe. Why should you suffer? Why don't you just bypass these, these, these people? They're, they're insignificant. You're the king of the universe. Why are you putting your head on a rock and not living in a, in a palace? Why should you die on a cross um, just for these lowly people? So, so Satan was trying to tempt Jesus to take a shortcut, to not go through the purpose of why he came, and that was to bring salvation to us. So during this interaction, Matthew points out that Satan... Uh, during this temptation, that Jesus had dominion over Satan, that that uh, that all Jesus had to do was say, "Get behind me, flee, get get out of here," and Satan had to obey because Satan is a created being, just like you are, and just like just like I am, that that um, a, as God created the the holy angels. The holy angels, as part of God's plan, had become defiled. They, they had sin in them. And so Satan is a fallen angel um, that has been defiled uh, through, um, through sinful acts. And there's no redemption for the angels, only for humans. So Satan tried to tempt Jesus, but Jesus showing superiority over Satan, over the demonic world. They have to obey, they have to obey God. That, that Matthew was pointing that this Messiah is superior, is superior over the demonic world. And then Matthew lays out that after Satan had fled, then the angels, the holy angels came and tended to Jesus' needs, gave him water and gave him food. So what Matthew is laying out is that the angelic world, the holy world, the, the, uh, the angels, that they came and showed that this Messiah was superior to them, uh, that the angels were serving the Messiah. The Messiah was not equal to angels or um, or beneath the angels. That that the um, that the Messiah was above the angels. That the angels were meeting his needs. Uh, uh, so so Matthew, in essence, checks that box, and then. Matthew lays out Jesus's interactions with the humans that Jesus did not come and then find the most religious people in town. Uh, no, he bypassed them because their religion was really a disgrace to Jesus. That's not the heart of God. That was ritual and man-made and, and had nothing to do with the, um, with the will of God. So, so Jesus came and he found fishermen. And what did the fishermen do when they saw it, when they saw Jesus, the Messiah? They immediately, not you know, weeks later, they immediately dropped their nets and followed him. They gave up everything they had. They gave up their careers, their family, their livelihoods, their reputations, 
and they follow Jesus. So, so Matthew is pointing out that 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 this Messiah is superior to humans. That he's superior to the demonic world. He's superior to the um, the angelic world, and he's superior to the um, to the human world. That we immediately drop what we're doing and follow him. And then um, uh, Matthew lays out the fact that the Messiah is superior, that he has dominion over the biological world, that there were people with diseases and illnesses, um, and Jesus just had to go and touch them, and those in the biological world responded to the, to the Messiah, that they fled, the, the diseases fled from the, from, the, uh, from the human body. So it showed that, uh, that this Messiah had superiority over the bio, biological world. Um, whether that is physical, meaning somebody was uh, born blind or somebody was uh, lame or somebody had leprosy, um, wh whatever that was, Jesus was able to create a new eye or new legs or, um, or to, to rid that illness. So it showed he had um, superiority over the physical world, over the biological world. And then it talked about how the people had, had responded to Jesus and said, we've never heard anyone say anything like this. Where did he learn this? Where did he, where did he, um, where did he get this knowledge? So they were hearing things that they had never heard. So it showed that he had do, um, dominion, that he was superior in, in intellect. He knew things that other people didn't know. He said things in a way nobody um, had ever said before. So it showed he had superiority as, as far as the spoken world and intellect. And then, and then Matthew lays out that he had superiority over the natural world, um, that when it was windy and, and stormy and, and um, Jesus just had to say, be still in nature, uh, the water and the clouds and, and, um, and, and all of nature obeyed. So it showed that this Messiah had superiority over the nature that he created. And then Matthew says, now that I've laid out the credentials, now that I've proven to you that Jesus uniquely fulfills all of the prophecies, that he does what you would expect God to be able to do, then he says, now let me go through and tell you the things that he said and let me um, show you the things that he did. And then Matthew continues into his gospel and begins with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes were part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he spoke about salt and light, the fulfillment of the law. He spoke about murder and adultery, divorce, and other things. So specifically the Beatitudes, um, they are blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the persecuted. So the point of the Beatitudes, it's really a progression of how our spiritual lives should be happening. If you think about it just on the surface of it, you know, poor, uh, blessed is the poor in spirit. Well, is, is that really true? I mean, should we all strive to be poor in spirit? Uh, does that elevate us in, in some way? Um, you know, to be meek, uh, to be hungry, hungry and thirsty, does that um, make us better people than others? You know, no. Uh, what Jesus is saying is that we need to come to God in a condition that is poor in spirit. If we are 
able to rely on ourselves, on our own wealth, on our own uh, power, on our own influence, then who needs God? But when we're broken, when we have an illness, when we're uh, despaired in our lives, that's exactly where God wants us because now we turn to him for help. So the, the, the stepping stone, if you will, is we all have to come into faith poor in spirit. We have to need a God. We have to need a Savior. If we feel we can save ourselves, we do not need a Savior. Once we become to him in poor in spirit, we look at our lives that we've lived, and that is a mourning. We look at how we've treated God, how we've ignored him. So the next step is we, we come into a repentance about, about our, our mourning and our condition. And then as we do that, we begin to change. We begin to, to get uh, meek in, uh, in spirit. We, we begin to turn to God and see his power, and we see how weak we really are in comparison. And then we get a hunger and thirst to learn about this God, to read about his scriptures, and to go to Bible uh, studies, and, and to go to podcasts, and, and to listen on the radio to, uh, to, to preachers and so forth. And then our progression goes into the merciful. How do we start to treat others? We look at how God treats us um, through that hunger and thirsting, and, 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 and we, we start looking at others. We start to look at the fellow church, and we, we start to show mercy and forgiveness to others as part of our progression. Uh, we, have a, we have a pure of heart. Um, we try to emulate Christ. Uh, we try to be um, use him as an example and in, to follow his ways and practices. And then we become peacemakers. We turn to others, family members and friends that have maybe not experienced what we have. And we want to share with them. If, if we're um, a, a poor beggar, we want to go and tell other poor beggars where we found our food. Um, so, so we become uh, peacemakers. We, we want to bring others and reconcile them to, um, to eternity. Um, are they going to spend eternity in heaven or are they going to spend eternity in hell? So we become peacemakers uh, to that. And because we become peacemakers, many become hostile to us. Uh, they say, you know, you're a Jesus freak. Uh, don't bring that Christianity around me. Um, it starts to sever relationships. Um, so now we become in, we put ourselves into a position where, um, where there's a persecution. So the Beatitudes is really a progression of our lives, of where we should be going and where we should be today. And then Jesus points out about salt and light, that when we have this light in us, we don't hide it under a mattress. We want others to know. We want to put that light on top of a, a, a hilltop so that everyone else can see it. They can see how we're living our lives. They can see how um, what the scriptures have done for us and what our relationship through prayer and through forgiveness um, has done for us. And then the salt is really three things. One, it brings flavor to our lives, just like salt does. But if we have an open wound and I get salt in my wound, that's a stinging retribution. Um, so, so salt, um, it, it's really in a judgment, if you will. Um, so, so it brings flavor, but it also brings um, a, a, a cleansing, a uh, a sting, a sting. Um, it, uh, it, it's, it's, it's getting into that, uh, it's getting into that flesh and what it's doing, it, it's, it's eating that, that bacteria. It's, it's cleansing that sin, if you will. And then the final thing that, it, that salt does is it preserves us. 
uh, so we're preserved for eternity into heaven. Uh, that's what that's what salt does. You you salt um, fish, and and then what happens? It doesn't decay. So Jesus is pointing those things out, and that he had come as a fulfillment of the law. This isn't anything new. This was a continuation of what was always taught. The law is only judgment. The law doesn't have forgiveness. Forgiveness of the law comes in Jesus. If we break the law, there's only punishment. Uh, you're, you're paying a fine. You're paying a, a bill. You're going to jail. There's no reward. Uh, how, how, do we, how do we get that? Well, the, the, the payment for that uh, breaking of that law comes through Christ. And then on the Sermon on the, on the Mount, he goes into speaking about murder and adultery and divorce. And those are really just resetting the standards. Um, Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say. Jesus is resetting the expectation that we have allowed our standards to slip. Jesus is not um, uh, changing the law. He's setting the standard back up to where it should have been. He's saying, you've heard it said, you know, the reason you don't want to um, commit murder is because you don't want to get caught and put into jail. You know, that, that's why you don't do it. That's the standard. But Jesus says, even if you have um, anger in your heart, in essence, you've already killed. Just because you haven't followed up on it, because you don't want to have to go to jail and face a judge and, and pay financial costs, that's why you're not doing it. But the truth of the matter is, if you could get away with it, you probably would. And the same thing is with adultery. Um, you, you look, you lust after people with your eyes. Well, if you could do it, you would. Um, so just because you're falling short of it, your intent is already, it's already coming through your eyes. It's already coming from within. Um, and, and anyway, then he, he just continues on. Uh, through the teachings, which uh, you, you know you can continue to read on your own, so the the point is that that Matthew lays out the credentials, and he says, you know, let me prove to you that indeed Jesus is the Messiah, and he goes through that checklist, and then he goes in through the teaching, and the teaching go through the Gospels, and then go through the epistles, and then really continue through the um, the judgment of Revelation, so it's all interconnected. So listen to the next podcast and see where it goes.